40 here. So when we had the explosion of civil rights starting in the 1960s, expanded from blacks to women to gays to the transgendered to every imaginable minority group, uh, did no one think that uh, eventually, uh, eventually that uh, white people might start forming their own civil rights campaigns? And so as a result, you get groups like Goyim Defense League. Now you might say to me, 40. The Goyim Defense League, they're not sophisticated. They're not loving. They don't frame things in an appropriate way. They're not pro-social. They're not making the world a better place. They're, they're just a hate group, 40. Well, do you think that nature cares whether or not the, the Goyim Defense League are sophisticated with their phrasing? Do you really think that... Uh, Nature is, you know, really going to give points off to the Goyim Defense League because you know, they're not super sophisticated. That you know, they don't have the fancy schmancy words. They don't have the book learning. All right. Every form of life wants to thrive and wants to develop environments in which it can thrive, and that's as true as the Anti-Defamation League as the Goyim Defense League. All right, both forms of life both trying to create an environment around them in which they can thrive, all right? So the normal, natural thing is to primarily care about your family, your extended family, your, your community, your tribe, and your people, and to have some skepticism and concern about outsiders. So here I live in Los Angeles, and I'm from Australia, and I'm very comfortable with the eucalypti in Australia. But... Now they're, they're just taking over here in California. And I don't know a lot about the eucalypti, but I do know one thing, guys. They are not us. They are not American, right? When I see a eucalypti, I see a stranger. Yet they, they dwell among us. They suck out vital fluids, right? They're just enormous suckers on our water supply. They, they impurify our waters. They destroy native vegetation that simply wants to live in peace, Right, I could just stand here for the next three hours and praise the gentle ways of native Californian plants so our native vegetation just wants to live in peace and in harmony. I mean, they used to have a utopia here before the white man came and started turning different forms of life against each other. I mean, the, the gentle ways of the native Californian plants are not bigoted. They're not racist. They're not genocidal. All right? Uh, native Californian plants, they don't have like in-group versus out-group identities, right? And the only way to protect the, the gentle, kind native Californian plants is to be tough. It means we got to be rigorous. We, we got to keep out these super predator invasive species like the eucalypti who 
it's just not very nice what they're doing to our native plants, right? The eucalyptus tend to emit a compound, all right, that uh, kills competing plant life around it. And is anyone ever going to speak up about this? Is anyone going to be courageous enough to tackle the eucalyptus question? I mean, I don't know a lot about eucalypti, but I tell you, every time I go to a bank, there's a bloody eucalypti nearby. So they're already taking over our streams, our forests, our gardens, our college campuses, right? They're also taking over the banking system. And I think it's time that uh, somebody stands up and says, this is not okay, right? Eucalyptus trees are an invasive species, and yet they, they dwell among us. A and no, one, no one's willing to do anything. It wasn't really that good for lumber anyways. They're from a similar climate, one of the five Mediterranean climates. You might know these, they're everywhere. They take over our riparian habitats, they take over chaparral, they take over coastal sage scrub. It's very aggressive. This guy is so politically correct. He's not mentioning the media. He's not mentioning our universities and our schooling systems. He's not mentioning the banks and our political systems. He's just using all these euphemisms. It has very aggressive roots. It outcompetes everything because it shades out everything growing beneath it, but it also just drowns it in leaf litter. And they've just become a horrible, awful, invasive plant. I really don't like them. Can I just be honest? I don't like these. Here's a really big weed. And you may say, oh, this guy's a hater. This guy needs to learn to live in love and peace and harmony with eucalypti. But guess what? If this guy tries to live in peace and love and harmony with eucalypti, they'll just keep spreading their power and their influence. They'll keep out-competing the natives. They'll just keep taking over our, our communities one by one. And this is the San Diego Botanic Garden guy here. Dropping some hard truths. This is a eucalyptus tree. These come from Australia. They were brought over for lumber and it turns out it wasn't really that good for lumber anyways. They're from a similar climate, one of the five Mediterranean climates. You might know these, they're everywhere. So is someone, is someone willing to, uh, to speak up about this? I grew this? up in Oakland Hills. I remember as a kid walking to the end of the street and overlooking the Caldecott Tunnel and this house that was just burnt down to a foundation. And I never really knew exactly what happened until I started doing research for this video. The Oakland Hills fire that we're gonna talk about today killed 25 people, did $3.9 billion of damage, burned almost 3,500 homes to the ground, and is one of the most costly and deadly fires in the history of California. And the crazy thing is it happened over the course of only 72 hours. Today we're gonna to be talking about the Oakland Hills fire of 1991 and the hundred plus years of decisions that led to this tragedy and what we can learn from this going forward when it comes to uh, fire management and fire reduction. Growing up in the Bay Area, there was always this plant that you would see everywhere. It is grown in ditches, it's grown on the side of the road and it's a beautiful tree. And I always just kind of assumed that whenever you see a tree that's around so frequently, you just kind of assume that it's native. And I always thought that this tree was a native California plant. It's not, it was the blue gum eucalyptus tree and it is literally everywhere. This is a tree that dates back in California to the gold rush. When during those times, things were taken off so rapidly, people from all across the world were trying to come to the Bay Area in California to try to take advantage of this gold rush. So they needed to build rapidly. And the way they were gonna do that is by using eucalyptus lumber to build a lot of the infrastructure that was gonna be needed for this population boom that was incoming. And since California has a very similar climate to what was found in Australia, people at the time thought it might be a good way to bring the eucalyptus tree over and use it as a timber source for the foreseeable future. The problem is that once they realize what happens when you dry out the timber, it has a tendency to curl and twist, which makes it not very usable for the types of you know, railroad building, houses, buildings, so it became a timber that was not very useful to the people that brought it across uh, the Pacific Ocean in the first place. And since that point, eucalyptus, because of its similar climate to Australia, has done very well. And it is 
pretty much found everywhere, and according to the state of California, it is a moderate invasive species. Besides its prevalency, the thing that makes this a really nasty invasive species has to do with its reactions to being caught on fire. Wait, how is this kind of hatred towards another species allowed on YouTube? I mean, this guy's just a hater. Now, you think, oh, he's just, he's got legitimate interests. He wants to protect, you know, native wildlife. He wants to keep his communities, you know, the way they have been. But the only way people like this guy are going to survive, all right, is if he learns to become multicultural and learns to appreciate the eucalypti. The eucalypti are going to educate people like this backward bigot into becoming more welcoming to invasive species. And we have to stop using that kind of otherizing language. Like, eucalypti are not invasive species. They are just friends that we haven't made yet. California is an area that burns down frequently, and eucalyptus is a tree that is very flammable. The sap that the tree produces allows the trees to go up rapidly, and the peely bark, which is a pretty... I mean, can't you say, you know, horrible things about every form of life? Like, why on earth do you have to single out the eucalypti? All right. The eucalypti are fundamentally a form of life that wants to live in peace. All right. The eucalypti are a religion of peace. They are the embodiment of peace. And yet there are these genocidal maniacs who want to go like Adolf Hitler on them and like burn them. Right. They just want to burn them up. Didn't we learn anything from the Holocaust? common characteristic that you'd find with eucalyptus trees, the tree tends to shoot off that bark up to 100 yards in any direction, which is a really easy way for the fires to spread rapidly. Different people have different ways of expressing love. All right, when the eucalypti tree is firing off its bark, you know, 100 feet away, I mean, that's how it expresses love. Now, other people go to a bathhouse and spread around monkeypox. Right, love is love. And fire is love. Fire is just another different, another way that people express love. So now in the California Bay Area, you have these very flammable eucalyptus trees growing pretty much everywhere. And now we go to October of 1991, where a small brush fire breaks out in the Oakland Hills that is put out pretty quickly. This was a day that there was not much wind, and the fire crews that came in handled it pretty easily. The problem is that there were still some embers that were smoldering from the previous night when, the next morning, the fire reignited. However, on the second day, the weather was much worse for fire conditions. You had winds blowing 65 miles an hour that made it so this fire that was very contained in the first day spreads rapidly in conjunction with these eucalyptus trees that are very flammable and shoot these. This is how Nazi Germany started. Right, this is how Hitler took over, using this kind of otherizing rhetoric, saying, "Oh, you know, you know why we have problems? It's because of the, it's because of this group or because of that group." I mean, this is just, this is right out of the Joseph Stalin playbook, right? And you may be saying, "Could this happen here?" It is happening here. Look right here in this video. It is happening here. Basically, flaming pieces of bark up to 100 yards in any direction that causes the fire to spread rapidly. In this area, you have winds called the Diablo Winds that are coming from the mountain range to the east of the Bay Area, which brings this very warm, dry air, similar to what you have with the Santa Ana winds down in Southern California, that brings these hot, dry winds, comes over the Oakland Hills, and meets the cold, wet air coming from the Bay, and gets this very unpredictable pattern of winds. So you have these very strong winds that are kind of swirling. It makes it so it's very difficult to predict which way the wind is going to be blowing at any given time. And Look, don't be taken in by his smooth-talking, book-learning, city-slicker, sophisticated ways. All right. At core, what he's preaching is hatred for another form of life. He wants to exterminate the eucalypti. He wants to like keep them in their place, right? You know, limit, limit their growth. Say, oh, you know, we're not going to allow them to dominate here and dominate there. He's against a free market, 
right? He, he doesn't he doesn't trust, you know, other forms of life to you know make useful choices. He wants to use authoritarian government power to to dictate like how how different forms of life can express themselves. He wants to regulate it and he wants to shut them down. It allows his fire to spread rapidly. And then we get something that's called a firestorm. A firestorm is a fire that's so severe and intense that it creates its own weather conditions inside of it. And it makes it even less predictable to decide which way the fire is gonna spread. As fire management goes, you're able to mitigate some of the damage by having stuff burnt before the fire can actually get there to make sure that the fuel sources are limited by the time the main fire gets there. Yeah, so some forms of life have, you know, more sophisticated language than, than other forms of life. But uh, hate-filled anti-Semitic flyers appeared yesterday morning in the small beach town Sad. of Brigantine, New Jersey. Residents discovering the flyers with Nazi insignias from a group mm. called the Goyam Defense League, blaming COVID, abortion, inflation, all sorts of other issues on a list of Jewish officials in the White House, Department of Justice, the CIA, the State Department, and media companies led by Jewish owners or executives. Similar flyers were found earlier this month on Long Island, and just last week in Raleigh, North Carolina, and this summer in Palm Beach and other places across the country. This comes as the Anti-Defamation League says they've seen an extraordinary rise in anti-Semitic attacks. Okay, so one form of life here is competing with another form of life, but we're, we're being told by the 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 eucalypti-controlled news media, like, which form of life is valuable and which form of life needs to be regulated and imprisoned. And you think, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna swallow this? Think I'm just gonna take this? In 2021, more than any time in the group's 43-year history. Joining us now is Jonathan... Right, and the critique is that uh, the Goyam Defense League dehumanized Jews. Well, what about that, those blokes who were just talking? Were they dehumanizing eucalypti, saying that they are invasive species? Who would not want this man determining what we get to say on social media? I mean, this is a righteous form of life here. I can't think of anyone better to determine what we get to say on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. I mean, this guy is the one who determines, you know, what is acceptable public speech. And he's not some kind of narrow-minded ethnic activist. He believes in love and goodness and human flourishing. Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, this is so disturbing. Why do you see this rise in anti-Semitism now? Andrew, this is indeed an incredibly disturbing incident, but unfortunately it's part of this broader pattern. This group, the Goyim Defense League, we've tracked, as we do, more than 250 propaganda incidents across the country where they've left. And the, the Anti-Defamation League, it never engages in spreading propaganda. Like, spreading propaganda is completely foreign to the Anti-Defamation League. All they want to do is produce you know, unvarnished truth. They don't have any agenda, right? It's not like they're trying to prioritize the needs of one group over another. They're not prioritizing the needs of, you know, one form of life over another. They're not politically partisan. They're not ethnically partisan. They're not religiously partisan. They're not culturally partisan. This isn't anything to do with, you know, social class, right? This is just the, the unvarnished pursuit of truth flyers like you showed in that clip or they put out signs or stickers specifically targeting the jewish community so as you said this comes on the heels wait 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 what those other other videos specifically targeting the eucalypti community don't they count for anything of record number of anti-semitic incidents in the country and this year alone this group the gdl has more than tripled the number of propaganda acts targeting jews making them feel incredibly vulnerable I don't know about you, but I've noticed that the Anti-Defamation League has tripled its propaganda acts over the past seven years. Is that, is my experience unique or 
Tell me about your lived experience with Anti-Defamation League propaganda. Honorable all over the United States. And this is not just happening in Jewish communities. No, not at all. The goal is to terrorize Jews and the people around them. So in that the Goyim Defense League, to the best of my knowledge, haven't murdered anyone. They haven't beaten anyone. They're completely law-abiding, as far as I'm aware. Right? Any legal infractions they make are minor. They are not a terrorist group. They don't hurt anyone except they say mean words. But they don't beat Jews up. They don't blow Jews up. They don't tear Jews up. They don't beat Jews down. Right? They, they don't commit any acts of violence, of which I'm aware they're completely focused on remaining within the law. And yet they get demonized like this. How could it be? Right, another act of anti-Semitism causes outrage. Starting to scream at us through the window, um, you know, free Palestine, F the Jews, um, die Jews. Okay, so that's perfectly legal. All right, they're not beating anyone up. All right, you give me a choice between two groups. One group goes around raping and murdering at disproportionate rates, and another group says some mean words, I, I would prefer the group that says mean words as opposed to beating people. Do. A family vacation here in South Florida ruined after an anti-Semitic attack. Eric Orgen here, his wife and teenage daughter, were met with hate after leaving a synagogue in Bell Harbor. The family believes the group of young men... Wait, 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 anti-Semitic attack meaning they were met with mean words. Is that what an attack now means? Right? They weren't beaten. And if their vacation was ruined, that's entirely on them. Right? One different form of life has an objection to another form of life. And they had an interaction that was not violent. And verbally attacked and threatened them because they are Jewish. The incident... Wait, I, I don't believe they threatened them. All right, the, the Goyim Defense League, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not the world's leading expert on the Goyim Defense League, but the Goyim Defense League deliberately keeps their behavior within the law. I, I am unaware of any acts of violence that they have committed. Happened along Collins Avenue and Harbor Way. Oregon says that a, a driver who witnessed that attack defended them, pulled out a gun and chased the men away. The group drove off while making those disturbing threats. They yelled they were going to rape my wife and rape my daughter. They then proceeded to um, continue screaming. They threw garbage. Okay, that's, that's not very nice. <laughs> right. Jot us out the window. They threw a water bottle out the window. Well, police are investigating this latest incident, which comes on the heels of other anti-Semitic attacks right here in South Florida. Last week, an anti-Semitic group was spotted spewing hate in a van covered in anti-Semitic writing in Boca Raton, Dania Beach, and Miami. Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine Cava reacted to the incident. Say okay, how are they monetizing this? So apparently the Graham Defense League is like... Marcy sometimes they're, they're making like $30 for like a four-hour protest. Thanks for the $25 donation. Appreciate Look. it, sister. Guys, pay attention. What was you Oh my God, the monetization of anti-Semitism. Sometimes they make $40. For like four hours of work. Live streams are an incredibly lucrative form of entertainment. From gaming to fashion, influencers can rake in. Wait, wait, this is supposed to be lucrative? I didn't know this was lucrative. What the hell? I had no idea. In hundreds of dollars in donation during a stream. This is also true for extremists like John Minadeo and his group, the Goyam Defense League. You're gonna get expelled again, you Goyam, no! You're gonna get expelled, you 
We're kicking you out again. GDL is a loose network of anti-Semites who harass Jews and other minorities. Yeah, but they don't beat them up, all right? They don't lay hands on them. They say mean words. Streaming it all on their platform, Goyam TV. The underlying message? Donate to hate. Burn in hell, you bastards. Burn in hell. GDL travels around the country on anti-Semitic Name the Nose tours. These tours can last for weeks. They are live streamed the entire time. Minadeo makes money by using the live stream monetization app, Entropy Stream. We're just setting up this uh, Entropy Stream, so um, when we go live, we're able to get donations. GDL members distribute propaganda, drop banners, and protest at Jewish institutions. Auschwitz, buddy, you see that? Camp Auschwitz, that's where you're gonna wind up. In the f***ing oven. During the Texas tour, they harass people outside of Chabad in Houston. You dirty Jew! You! You! As Minadeo harasses the driver, live chat cheers him on in real time. Mods ask for donations and send the Entropy Stream link. The more hateful the stream, the more money GDL makes. Keenly aware of his followers, Minadeo. Right, so let's add it up. Like uh, 40 guys do 40 hour, four hours of harassment. So 40 times four, that's like 160 hours of harassment, and they'll make something like $30. Wow, this is, this is going to overthrow. This is going to devastate our republic, guys. Dale constantly checks his phone for reactions. You guys have fun, one to 100? Numeric hate symbols fill the chat, including 110, a reference to the anti-Semitic trope that the United States could and should be the 110th nation to expel Jews. Besides the tours, GDL has another way to make money, selling anti-Semitic merch. Oh uh, yeah, in case you didn't see it, there it is. Are these on the website? Uh, yeah. These aren't on the website yet. They'll be on there about a week after. A week after the tour. The ADL Center on Extremism has been tracking GDL and groups like it for years. COE is the premier authority on extremism. The Center oh, on wow. Extremism continues to track the ways extremists try. This guy seems reasonable. I'm sure he's very centrist. I'm sure he's just nonpartisan right, right down the middle. He, he doesn't have an agenda. Seems like a, a fair bloke. Okay. This is uh, lead bloke here at the Goyam Defense League. And he has paid a price for his activism, right? He was holding up a sign outside of the Auschwitz concentration camp. His uh, real name is John Minadeo, and he lived in Petaluma for many years. He was arrested in Poland for demonstrating against Jews at the gates. And so a columnist for the Press Democrat went over to interview him, but he was like really scared to interview him, like scary, scary guy. And he remarked how polite Minadeo was. Like if you've heard from Norman Hobbes, very polite, very courteous young man. And so, too, when he went to interview John Minadeo, all right, so he uh, knocks on his door, all right? He doesn't schedule an interview. He just knocks on his door, and uh, John Minadeo says, you're ruining my life. And Minadeo asks if he can record our conversation. I say yes. So he has a 45-minute conversation in the guy's parked car. I didn't feel unsafe. 
The people I interviewed described John Minadea as more of an insatiable attention seeker than an angry brawler. At no time during our interaction was he even remotely threatening. Right. For all the evidence we have right now, these guys are not remotely threatening. They just say mean words. Right? He's, these are attention seekers. These are not violent people. So far. So far, the Goyim Defense League, we have no evidence that uh, that they are you know, violent, nasty, dangerous. Yeah, they're nasty, and they can hurt your feelings. But uh, they're not exactly, you know, burning people up. Oh boy, hate groups expanding quickly in Florida. Extremist hate crime on the rise. Pretty it's concerning. Florida becoming a more hateful state. A newly released report shows a sharp increase in extremist-related incidents. Now, the Anti-Defamation League releasing the report first to us this morning. Investigative reporter Katie Legrone is taking a closer look at the new data and why Florida is increasingly becoming home to hate groups. This 42-page report breaks it all down from incidents of hate to the numbers. And to be frank, it's scary. According oh, to it's scary, right? <laughs> Absolutely scary. The Anti-Defamation League, between 2020 and 2021, extremist-related incidents in our state jumped 71% from 120 incidents in 2020 to more than 200 just one year later. But it's what the ADL attributes that increase to causing the most concern. According to the ADL, the increase is fueled by the distribution of white supremacist propaganda. And they say now it's being spread by extremist groups working closely together through an interconnected network. A web of hate helping extremist groups expand quickly in a way researchers describe as unprecedented. I was most surprised by the rapid growth of the network that I described. Uh, you know, looking back uh, to incidents in 2019 and uh, early 20. Okay, so I've talked to more than my share of uh, white supremacists, and I've overwhelmingly found that if I treat them courteously, they tend to treat me courteously. And I've, I've encountered uh, plenty of people who are like screaming at, at Jews, and when I treat them courteously and respectfully, they usually treat me courteously and respectfully. But uh, other people think that there are other ways to to deal with the white supremacist threat. And let me pull that up. Meanwhile, 2020 that we tracked, we saw very few incidents from groups like um, the Goyim Defense League and White Lives Matter. But then in 2021, these groups really started to explode. In total, the Center on Extremism also recorded more than 400 instances of white supremacist propaganda between 20. Oh, boy. OK, so guess what? I've got some shocking news here. A Florida sheriff went out of his way to describe these people as scumbags. And you'll be surprised that they then reacted negatively to him. So, lesson in life, you call people scumbags, they will tend to have a negative reaction to you, and they will go out of their way to make your life more difficult if you go out of your way to make their life more difficult. So, Let's be clear. So far, everything we know about the Goyim Defense League is that they are not violent. They're not looking to start fights. Right? They are attention seekers. Here's the Washington Post. This news story about... was written by Danielle Paquette. The Florida Sheriff versus the Neo-Nazi scumbags. 
Daytona Beach, Florida, did Sheriff Michael J. Chitwood know how easy it was to make a laser weapon? Did he know that a laser weapon could be remote-controlled, shoot invisible beams, and blind him in one-fifteenth of a second? Do you have any idea how cheap it is to build a laser weapon that can start fires, blind for life, and even cause dark-colored skin to outright explode? Read the Right, so you can conduct your life in a way where you seek to have the best possible relations with everyone that you encounter, or you can go out of your way to denigrate and deride people and call them nasty names and be nasty to them, and then other people will be nasty to you. Right? This guy went about his way to be nasty to the Goyam Defense League, and shock, surprise, they retaliated. Email pinging his iPhone, subject line, you are an enemy of the American people. Seems likely. So you can usually have a choice about who regards you as an enemy, right? If you behave like somebody's enemy, they're much more likely to regard you as an enemy as opposed to if you are neutral or even nice and courteous. Chitwood muttered, forwarding the message to the deputy now charged with investigating messages he deemed threatening. Scumbags. The scumbags had emailed him dozens of times over the past month. He suspected that they'd reported a phony murder-suicide at his parents' address, sending a SWAT team to their door, long guns out, at 1.15 a.m. He suspected that they were the ones who'd posted his cell phone number on 4chan, encouraging others to join a campaign of calls and texts that so clogged his screen, he'd just placed an order for a burner phone. In the meantime, Chitwood, 59, the sheriff of conservative Volusia County since 2017, recycled comebacks he'd honed as a boy in South Philadelphia. Ask me if I give two SS what you think. So went another evening. And how's that working out for you? All right. How's that attitude working out for you? Is that is that a great way of making friends and influencing people? Right. I have found that... Uh, about half the time when someone's furious with me, if I'm simply nice and reasonable and courteous to them, their fury dissipates. It takes a little self-control, a little verbal judo. ...in his fight against the scumbags, which is what he called the group of men who'd used a laser projector in February to cast Nazi-glorifying text on the Daytona International Speedway, Hitler was right, and anyone who supported their in-your-face displays of anti-Semitism... As reports of hate propaganda surge to record highs, authorities across the country are torn over how to address rhetoric they fear could inspire violence. Some police departments have condemned the bigotry, sparking praise and criticism in a nation divided over where free speech ends and criminal intimidation begins. Others have declined to comment, aiming to minimize attention on white supremacist sentiments. Chibwood has rejected this playbook he sees as flimsy and futile. His strategy? Go nuclear. And how's that working out? All right. Y you have a life. How does it work out in your life when you go nuclear on people? All right. Is that a good winning, you know, approach to life? Just go nuclear on the scumbags. All right. I, I don't think it's such a winning approach to life. I know them now, and a lot of them are wonderful people. Have you Talking ever met Christians. a Jew hating Christian in all your years? I can't say I have. Or a white supremacist Christian? Uh, well, I never met a white supremacist. Right. So have you ever all, met a Christian that confirmed no, the fear that no, you had of them growing up? No, that's a great question, question. And the answer is no. When I say on radio, because we're told about all these white supremacists on the right, so my life is on the right. So I think, why haven't I met any? So they're, they're, the, the only possible answers are, well, you did, but they hide it from you, which is possible. 
because they know I won't react well. My view of racism is as much that it's evil as that it's stupid. The idea that race says anything about you is stupid. And I, I don't hold, I don't think any stupid ideas. I, I don't say all of my ideas are right, but the wrong ones aren't stupid. And that, that that's just stupid. And, and by the way, stupidity has taken over the left because they do believe. Uh, does, does race matter for what? All right. Do different communities produce, you know, different neighborhoods have, have different gifts. Right. I, I think his analysis here is stupid. Leave race is important. It, it's, 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 it's scary. But anyway, uh, it, it has just been, uh, so I can't wait to write my Is race important for what? All right. There are different uh, drugs that interact with different types of people differently. So if you're doing medicine to be a responsible doctor, you have to racially profile. If you don't racially profile when you're a doctor, you're irresponsible. You're putting people's lives at risk. Medication frequently works differently on different races, different levels of blood pressure and other diagnostics for, for health uh, vary depending on race. Uh, different races, different groups tend to have different life trajectories. Like some races live a lot longer than others. Uh, they tend to have different health challenges, right? They tend to have different gifts and different problems and create very different communities. Autobiography. I mean, it's, I am so idealistic that I am finishing my Bible commentary, despite the fact that all of my passion right now is to write my autobiography. I really, I don't know how you do it. Well, that's a separate question. I just know somebody has to explain these biblical texts or they will go further and further into oblivion. It's so true. It's just so true. No, wait, I got to tell you, uh, Julie. So true. I mean, so true because these these biblical texts, the, the Bible, would just go go into oblivion if Dennis Prager doesn't rescue it from complete oblivion. Like, how else would we ever understand the Bible if we didn't have Dennis Prager explaining it to us? So... One thing that I noticed as I converted to Judaism, that the Jews and the non-Jews who are most enthusiastic about Dennis Prager's teachings of the Bible were the people least likely to be literate in the original languages of the Bibles of the Bible. Right? They, they tended not to have a deep background in in Hebrew or in in Torah. On the other hand, as I got to meet people who have devoted their life to studying Torah. Uh, Dennis Prager just doesn't show up in their consciousness. So the people who actually take Torah seriously, the people who take Bible seriously, are the people the least likely to pay any attention to Dennis Prager. Right? There's no academic interest in Dennis Prager. There's no academic interest in Dennis Prager's you know Bible commentaries. But they're they're a huge hit with the 100 to 120 IQ crowd who doesn't know much about the Bible. But for people who do know a great deal about the Bible, then they just have no interest in what Dennis Prager has to say. And I wish it wasn't that way, because I got enthused by Dennis Prager. That's what led to my conversion to, to Judaism. Then I arrive in Judaism, and I notice that those Jews who are the most enthusiastic about Dennis Prager's presentation of Judaism are those Jews who are the least knowledgeable in Judaism. And those Jews who are the most knowledgeable, most observant of Judaism are the least interested in Dennis Prager. It's like uh, one, one wit said about uh, reform rabbis. There are two types of reform rabbis, those who think that Judaism is social justice and those who can read Hebrew. So there are two types of, of fans of Dennis Prager, like you know, those who love him and then those who can actually read Hebrew, who have a background in Torah. They have no interest in what he has to say. 
And I, I don't think that's great. I'm not applauding that. I'm not going, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. You know, boo Dennis, because I enjoy a lot of Dennis Prager's, you know, biblical commentary. Like, I, I found it, it a blessing. But I have to be honest, honest 40, all right, the, the people who are scholars, right, the people who have really devoted themselves to studying these texts, they have no interest in anything that Dennis Prager has to say. That you love the rational Bible and the effect it's had on your life. It has it, revolutionized my life. Well, let me just say this. You don't even have to react. If all I did was affect you, it was worth it. I know. You said that at Shabbat the other day. I did? That was very touching. You did. Thank you. It's Again, I feel like a broken record, but it, it has so impacted me. It's like I, I was, I can't remember who I was talking to the other day, but I was, I was telling someone about it. And I said, you know, it was like when I was done reading it, it's like I put on these, these glasses and I just saw the world in a different shade. I saw, I just saw the world differently. And that was, I went from seeing the world in a secular way to a religious way. And it, it just, it, it's. Yeah, Dennis Prager is Jewish. And Julie comes from a Christian background. And uh, don't think she's particularly religious. It, changed, it has changed my life from the mundane to the profound. It is, you know, when That's I walk right. down the street, when I look around me, I, I feel more connected to life. I appreciate the everyday more. And then also, it's so, it's so weird because being religious or having an appreciation for religion as I do makes the mundane more profound and the profound less daunting. And so then when I'm sitting in front of, like, thank God, thank God I have your rational Bible commentary and it really soaked in before I started my show. Because when I sit there, it could... The pressure and how daunting it is could be crippling and overpowering for me. But because thanks to you and your book, I have this religious worldview, I go, this is greater than me. You know, as long as I'm espousing good values here, like, it doesn't matter if I mess up. It doesn't, this, you know, this one show doesn't matter. Like, I, in other words, the me isn't as overpowering in my life. That's right. So anyway, that's just to say, it is, it is so revolutionized me. Um, and, you know, in my show, Timeless, again, not to feel like I'm you can do it plugging it, but I'm actually, not, I'm actually not even trying to. It's I know just, you're not, but it doesn't matter. I want everybody to watch it. Right, me. no, but, but um, I, I'm going to talk a fair amount about religion. And look, you know, and our viewers know that I don't know exactly theologically how I identify. But what I do know is that I'm an ethical monotheist. And as you say, I want to argue for the necessity of God in Judeo-Christian values rather than proof. So that will be a huge part of my show. And again, I promise I'm not saying that to just plug it. You don't have to apologize. I feel like a relentless uh, salesman here. We are salesmen. Right, but it annoys know, me when you, I hear yeah, okay, other... Fine. It's like, yeah. oh, no, just no, we're up. salesmen for great ideas. It, it, it doesn't matter. Do you know that the Atlantic, which is, of course, left, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not even centrist, it's a left uh, thought magazine. They have an article in the latest issue about, I didn't finish reading it, but it is about the increasing number of thinkers, professors, largely, who argue that the demise of the human species would not be a calamity. <laughs> so I said on my radio show, now folks, again, this is example number 10,000 of how the left keeps me religious. The left, the left shows me what secularism leads to. Yep. The left is in, an inevitable reaction to secularism. I know there are secular conservatives, I thank God for them, but ultimately, as I said, it's interesting, I now say this regularly, because I speak a lot to conservatives who are not religious, and, and, and they're my allies and friends and great people. But my, I have a new line. I don't think you've heard this. I hope not, because you'll love it. Your grandchildren will be leftists. Yeah. I worry about that with my kids. It's a great line. Secular it's a conservatives line. are terrific, but you cannot, secular conservatism cannot survive the death of, of, of the Bible, the death of God, for, for a, 
generations. Well, I talk about this with my Jewish friends, and the only reason why I'm specifically pointing out my Jewish friends as opposed to my Christian friends is because Jews are already a teeny tiny uh, percentage of the world population, and it's dwindling. But a lot of my Jewish friends are secular. And I say to them, this is without even knowing your line, I say, your grandkids will not know what Judaism is. I don't think they care. Yeah, yeah. Well, they. Well, we talked about this at Shabbat dinner. I thought it was a fascinating conversation. I'm not sure your Jewish friends know what Judaism is. Well, they say that it's, and, and obviously you're the expert, so tell me. They say that. Well, Prague <laughs> is the expert. I mean, the the people who actually devote their lives to studying Torah and observing the commandments of Torah would not regard Dennis Prager as an expert. They would regard him as uh, completely outside the the community of uh, Jewish observance. So. There are scholars who talk about the world coming to an end, and there's a good book review about this in the New York Review of Books, Hastening the End. Adam Kirsch's Revolt Against Humanity is a survey of transhumanist thought, a diverse field united by cosmic pessimism. But what do the people who think the world's coming to an end have in common with Dennis Prager, who thinks the United States is coming to an end? Right? They both catastrophizers. They both love the apocalyptic. Right, they're both transfixed by the the demise of all that is good, and what makes that so compelling for intellectuals is that it makes you really, really, really important. Right, if you're able to see civil war going outside, I look outside, I see trees of green, skies of blue, and I think, what a wonderful world. But Dennis Prager is so much more wise than I am. He looks outside and he sees that we're becoming Nazi Germany. Well. Dennis Prager and these professors who think it'd be a good thing that we're all coming to an end, they share the same you know, self-referential, you know, self-advancing type of, of thinking. You know, I'm really important because I am dwelling on and I am articulating and I am commentating on the most important thing that's going on in the world right now. All right. So whether it's civil war or the end of humanity, it's it's a look at me i'm talking about the most important thing that's going on right now you've got to pay attention to me now i'm the one i'm the one who can let you know what's really happening autumn presents hastening the end published by the new york review of books written by mark o'connell if humanity were to disappear from the earth what would be lost on the human scale, the answer is everything. But on a planetary scale, it's tempting to concede that such a loss might amount to a net gain. It is probably not necessary to enumerate the various ways that humanity has been unambiguously bad for the planet and pretty much every other living creature on it. But we tend not to think of our species, and the prospect of its extinction, in such bluntly utilitarian terms. We'd rather we weren't so terrible, but we'd also like to think, even if it means fooling ourselves, that we might in time become less terrible, and either way, an enthusiastic embrace of our extinction would surely be taking things a bit far. Or would it? This is the question that animates The Revolt Against Humanity, a brisk and bracing new book by the poet and critic Adam Kirsch. So there are all these intellectuals who are promoting you know, the end of humanity that will be better off when we don't have uh, people around anymore. Then, finally, nature can be free. So what on earth unites the transhumanists and the people who think it's you know, great that uh, humanity is coming to an end 
and people like Dennis Prager who say, you know, we're in a civil war already as America, you know, marches towards becoming Nazi Germany. The answer to this question would be that there is no reason at all and that we should therefore discontinue humanity like the outmoded technology it is. But this reveals a deeper and more troubling dimension of transhumanist thinking that Kirsch only gestures toward. It is predicated on a very impoverished conception of human life. It's easy to imagine artificial intelligence making large parts of the labor force obsolete. But the belief that it's likely to make humanity itself obsolete says less about AI than it does about the person with that belief. If you think intelligence is merely a matter of solving complicated mathematical problems or winning games of chess, then yes, AI has already begun to displace humanity. But if you believe that a human being counts for more than computational power, or, for that matter, economic productivity, then the very notion of obsolescence can only ever be a bizarre category error. It's also a strangely comic one. Transhumanists like Kurzweil and Musk, with their insistence on conflating humans and computers, bring to mind Flann O'Brien's surreal postmodernist masterpiece, The Third Policeman. One of the novel's weirder plot strands concerns the insidious phenomenon of people slowly turning into bicycles and bicycles into people as a result of too much time spent biking. Sergeant Pluck, the policeman of the rural Irish parish gripped by this confusion of men and machines, explains the problem using a spectacularly garbled version of atomic theory. The gross and net result of it is that people who spent most of their natural lives riding iron bicycles over the rocky roadsteads of this parish get their personalities mixed up with the personalities of their bicycle as a result of the interchanging of the atoms of each of them. And you would be surprised at the number of people in these parts who nearly are half people and half bicycles. O'Brien would have recognised and would surely have been richly amused by the phenomenon of men spending too much time on the computer and getting their personalities and their fellow humans mixed up with the personalities of their machines. Both flanks of Kirsch's anti-human revolt share the conviction that, to put it in Kleistian terms, the page has been turned on the final chapter. It's in the nature of apocalyptic movements and of human beings to think of history as a narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end that is about to be revealed. And our current moment, with its rising sea levels and viral pandemics, its Mars colonizing billionaires and fragmenting global orders, certainly feels apocalyptic. But there is something undeniably self-flattering in the idea of an imminent apocalypse, in that it places us, our generation, our time at the very centre of the meaning of things, as the ultimate protagonists of history. And this is related to the somewhat grandiose appeal of the end of the world as a subject. I say this as someone who has written not only a book about transhumanism, but also one about apocalyptic anxieties. When I was writing the latter book, a friend commented that it must be quite a reassuring subject to work on, because if you're writing a book about the end of the world, you can be confident that there is nothing more pressing to consider, and thereby be assured of your own intellectual seriousness. If it was a compliment, it was one that contained within it an unmistakable and accurate charge of intellectual vanity. The apocalypse, as a subject, might be too serious for its own good.
yeah, intellectual vanity that uh, it takes uh, Dennis Prager to. <laughs> what did he say that uh, to to keep to keep knowledge of the Bible going? It takes Dennis Prager. Now I appreciate Dennis Prager's commentaries, but uh, I don't think you know even with all his work on it, it's going to make an appreciable difference in you know, keeping the the Bible central to our, our civilization. It's it's just intellectual vanity to to think otherwise and then this idea that uh you know he's he's trying to forestall civil war as you know civil war takes over more and more of america as we turn into nazi germany again it's just intellectual vanity it's like i'm at the very center of things i'm talking about what's most important so whether it's the transhumanists it's the civil war freaks or people pushing civil war that we're in a civil war or people saying oh the world would be better off without human beings what uh, what possibly unites them? What unites radio talk show hosts, YouTube live streamers, pundits, all right, that uh, most of us are primarily trying to advance our own career, that the underpinning of almost everything we have to say is I'm really important and you need to, you need to listen to me because I've got it figured out. All right, Tucker Carlson has written about white identity politics and... Uh, Greg Johnson here critiques him. Tucker Carlson deserves a lot of thanks for being the most outspoken critic of the insanity of America's ruling family, the demented and abusive husband, the Democrats, the abused and clinging wife who enables him, the Republicans, their spoiled and insane daughter, the left, and their increasingly aggressive pit bull that they allow to bite people and be foul of their neighborhood. Tucker speaks primarily for the abused and neglected son, the American people, who is now at risk from a whole range of self-destructive behaviors. I hope the kid makes it He's lucky to have Uncle Tucker in his life. Particularly grateful that Mr. Carlson has spoken openly about the great replacement, the ongoing demographic decline of white nations due to third world immigration at low white birth rates. The great replacement is truly a magical concept. If you object to the great replacement, it is an evil right-wing conspiracy theory that merits censorship and imprisonment. If you celebrate it, however, you can be published by the New York Times. But as useful as Mr. Carlson has been to advocate of white identity politics like me he is not one of us so greg johnson says the united states is becoming non-white everyone is excited about it or if you're not excited about it it doesn't matter whites are going to be in the minority and this is such a perpetual theme on the alt-right and it just shows such a shallow understanding of demographics they just take whatever the census department releases as god's gospel truth so when the United States conducts a census, someone who is one sixteenth Asian and 94% white, you know how they're counted in the census? They're counted as 100% Asian. Right? The United States census dramatically overstates the number of one non-whites, dramatically understates the number of whites, but all these people who devote their lives to keeping America white, they, they don't seem to have done any you know, elementary investigation of how these figures are compiled of what they actually mean. So it, to the extent I, I filled out my U.S. census forms or any like racial forms, I would I put Caucasian. Right? I, I don't list my 116th Chinese ancestry, but if someone did, right, they would be counted in the U.S. census you know, by that tiny minority. So if someone is one-eighth black and seven-eighths white, U.S. census counts them as 100% black. So if you're going to devote your life to you know, preserving white identity or white culture, you'd think you'd put a little bit of time into understanding 
the U.S. Census, how it conducts its, its business, the, the basis for its facts, and you know the highly dubious nature of much of what the U.S. Census reports. So this is Greg Johnson. This hour, read Tucker Carlson's remarks so far. The Great Replacement is happening. All the dominant voices are celebrating it. If you don't celebrate it, that doesn't matter. They're not giving us any choice in the matter. Whites are going to be a minority. Whites are not going to be a minority, all right, on, on current trends, all right? Whites are not going to be a minority for 50, even 100 years, right? They are going to be the principal racial group in, in the United States. The U.S. Census Bureau will tell you that whites are a minority, and that's because they're counting people who are one-eighth black or one-sixteenth Asian as 100% non-white. If you attack white people as white, eventually they're going to defend themselves as white. Thus, white identity politics is inevitable. This is true. In a democracy becoming a minority, it means that we will lose even the chance of asserting political control over our own destiny. No, not necessarily. I mean, in Brazil, you had the election of Jair Bolsonaro, so you can still, you know, exercise if you are disciplined and if you are smart, you can still make a difference in your government. A current democracy is a sham because we were never allowed to vote on the Great Replacement to begin with. So I don't buy the Great Replacement. So notice how he frames the Great Replacement. It's the ongoing demographic decline of white nations due to third world immigration and low white birth rates. Like, how is it that white people are choosing to have fewer kids? How is that a great replacement? Right? It's not, they're not being replaced. Their numbers are dwindling. And then you have immigration, all right? Let's say you have immigration of, of, of non-whites, but uh, it's not exactly a replacement, all right? You don't have people being taken out as you bring other people in. You can argue it's a dilution. But uh, the Great Replacement is just factually wrong. We were never allowed to vote on the Great Replacement to begin with. People did have opportunities to vote for immigration restrictionists, and they didn't choose that, right? Uh, shutting down immigration is important to me. It's probably important to you. It's probably important to 5 10% of the population, another 30 40% of the population's you know, moderately supportive of it. But overall, it's not, you know, the dominant theme for Americans. Okay, what do I want to talk about? I got so much, so much to talk about. And so little time to do it in. This one, oh, this is what I want to talk about. Okay, I'm going to decode decoding the gurus. Here they're talking about Matthew Goodwin, who is a an English professor and right-leaning. It's a very centristly liberal podcast. They recently hosted this academic, Matthew Goodwin, a professor of politics at the University of Kent in the UK. Matt, you may have heard his name in Discourse World because he often comes out with these articles or polls that he's conducted saying, you know, people are in favor of Brexit, people want more restrictive immigration, like basically arguing that it's all academics and elites looking down on the masses and the people aren't going to take it anymore. He's kind of like a, in a sense, like a pro-populist academic. I think he started off supposedly in an objectively academic sense, documenting the populist forces on the right, but he's ended up something of an academic cheerleader for those forces in his own right. And we may cover him, but I listened for my sins to that discussion he had with Constantine and Francis. And 
they're very upset about a variety of things, but there were some things that got to me, Matt. It, it reminded me of a conversation we listened to and you discussed how Jordan Peterson seemed to be somewhat, seemingly through intuitive principles, advocating, you know, it's overused, but essentially advocating for the, the groundwork of fascism, right? Like a kind of blood and soil appeal to real men and strong men and politics and the weak things holding stuff back and, and all this, which was particularly glaring because Jordan Peterson fancies himself a scholar of, you know, the creeping authoritarianism and then goes to Hungary and accepts an award of academic freedom or whatever it is. But yeah, so I got some shades of that from this conversation and I wonder if you'll pick up on them too. So I've got a clip that encapsulates the general thesis that's been offered. Here it is. And it goes back to what I, what I talk about in the book. I mean, we've never really had a political class that has been this dominated by people from particular groups. I mean, university graduates and political careerists, um, people who have only ever worked in politics. I mean, we've, we've always had an elite in Britain, but, you know, in the old days, um, the elite also typically went into politics having done other things, you know, different jobs, different, different things, you know, running companies, being out there. Today, I think that's, that's less the case. And so this, the political class in my book has become much more homogenous, much more uniform, very narrow. The range of voices in parliament, the range of voices in the media, in our culture has become much narrower. So mad. Indeed. Never before have we had homogenous, out-of-touch ruling class. And I blame, I blame you for this annoying me so much because you've been talking about the Revolutions podcast endlessly. And I ended up starting to listen to it. It's very good, as you've recommended. And I, I'm listening to it about the French Revolution now. You'll be surprised to learn, Matt, that there are out-of-touch... Wait, I want to hear about uh, the manifesto of the transgendered uh, shooter. Phil PD heroically ran in and shot him posing as a her, dead, saving countless more lives. They raided his house, finding 20 journals, five laptops, and seven cell phones, and a suicide note from the shooter. Seems like a lot of information that could be released to the public, right? We're all wondering, why did the killer do this? And we still don't have any answers. What was the motive? The public is completely in the dark because the FBI won't release the manifesto. Now, some local politicians who have seen parts of the manifesto firsthand are calling the manifesto astronomically dangerous and a blueprint on total destruction, saying it presented too much danger to the public. One thing that's dangerous is us not knowing what's going through this sicko's mind. It's been nearly four weeks since this happened. Imagine this. If a white nationalist had shot up an inner city school, no matter how dangerous their blueprint was, the manifesto would be released immediately. Same if it was a pro-life activist, or especially if it was a Trump supporter. But this is too dangerous? The truth is, they know it and you know it. We have the right to see what this transgender shooter wanted to do. The free flow of information is what makes America, America, but the FBI doesn't agree. Something like this should not be held from the public, especially when it affects everyone. Withholding this manifesto is... Okay, that's an interesting point there by Jesse, uh, no, uh, Pete Hegseth. He was the guy who went to campaign for that horrible U.S. Marine who was just shooting off all those Iraqis. And Pete Hegseth and Fox News uh, got, you know, Donald Trump to essentially remove any formal punishment for this uh, horrible Marine. There was a four-part Special Forces Green Beret, uh, Special Forces, What's that? SEAL team. SEAL team member. So there's a four-part HBO special on this this bloke. He was just absolutely horrible. And uh, Pete Hegseth, you know, went to bat for him. Right, back to decoding UK right-wing academic Matthew Goodman. Elites and, and even inherited monarchies that, that involve 
out-of-touch figures and accusations that we are being ruled by, you know, the accusations of who's the out-of-touch elite fling back and forth. But it was surprising to learn that this is a new development, that, you know, now, this era, the contemporary era is when this has just emerged. It just emerged, yes. It's never been that uh, the university-educated lawyers and such like have dominated parliament and political things. No, and careerists, Matt. Careerists. careerists. They all had salt-of-the-earth jobs down at the mines, working on the fields before they went into their lordships and their inherited peerships. Like, that's, that's always been the case, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? They're totally out of step with reality, but it's a perennial trope, isn't it? That elites, these people in the big cities with their families. Well, there is a significant change. People didn't used to make... Uh being in political office their entire life's work so there has been you know there, there has been a a change that the professor is right and the two academics here on center left they're also right in their critique in that all societies have always had elites and educated people tend to be more influential than less educated people Fancy degrees and the corridors of power you know out of touch with the volk with the people the, the, the real people like you and me i mean this is the populist battle Oh, out of touch with the Volk. So these two lefty academics, they immediately want to go that, you know, this is Nazi. But uh, saying that uh, our ruling elites are out of touch, right, that's not primarily some, you know, kind of Nazi thing. There have been, you know, dozens of countries, dozens of nations, dozens of places where regular people have complained that the elite are out of touch. That's not distinctly Nazi. But these two left-wing academics, they immediately go for the, the Nazi angle. That's their, that's their put-down. As though only Nazis care about ruling elites. Only Nazis care that uh, there's just a tiny group of people running the nation. Somehow that's just peculiar to Nazis. This is a particularly weak critique. And the two people who are making it, Christopher Kavanaugh and Matthew Brown, they just have no expertise in, in politics. So they are talking about things they know nothing about. That's, that's been, I mean, it's not that there's not some truth in it. Of course, there's some truth in it. But that's been a trope for hundreds of years, ever since we had politicians. Before then, we had, as you said, monarchies and aristocrats. And that was it. I don't think they were people of the people either. No. And so another part of this analysis is essentially it wants to paint all the political parties currently vying as essentially like a grey neoliberal blob like they've got like slight differences in emphasis sure one is pro-brexit one is against brexit but you know fundamentally it's all neoliberal shills however you color it and so this i thought was a, an interesting way that they tie together um this is british politics focused matt but i think you know you'll know the figures that he mentions here the conversation vividly we said there is a unique historic opportunity here for boris johnson and the conservatives to reshape the country and they squandered that opportunity. They lost that opportunity. Why did they? I would suggest, as I argue in the book, is that because conservative elites basically are too culturally liberal mm. and too economically liberal to connect with the voters who are looking for somebody to reassert their values in the system. And so all we've really had since Brexit is a continuation of what you might call the liberal consensus, which has basically dominated British politics for much of the last 30, 40 years. Margaret Thatcher, you know, was needed. Uh, I'm, I'm open to, I accept the idea that, you know, Thatcher's reforms, in my mind, at the time, they were needed. But what she did is she injected this radical economic liberalism, deregulated uh, the economy, liberalised finance, embraced globalisation, or what Danny Roderick has called hyper-globalisation, the routine prioritisation of big business, of big corporates over the national community. And that was followed by Blair. And Blair then came along and he injected radical cultural liberalism. He said, hey, we're going to strip away the borders of the national community. We're going to have mass immigration. We're going to have European integration. We're going to take meaningful choice out of politics. Left and right are essentially going to become the same thing. Brexit, populism, the realignment were 
really an attempt by voters to break that consensus, mm -hmm. to challenge that consensus. And what we can now see is that actually uh, those revolts have failed to do that and that the elite, the new graduate elite, socially liberal, if not radically progressive, has reasserted its political and cultural power uh, and pushed back uh, that, that rebellion. Well, guess what? The smartest, most effective, most elite people will inevitably take back power, right? Smarter people are going to be better at uh, seizing power and maintaining power and wielding power than uh, people with less education and less intelligence, of course. Yes. So mm. uh, Thatcher, you know, minor things in between, but basically a complete consistent line up to Blair and the modern Tories, which is the hiccup of Brexit, upsetting things in a way. But now we're all back on the neoliberal train. How does that sound to you, Matt? Do you think there's any meaningful differences between Thatcherite politics and New Labour or, you know, pretty much the same game? <laughs> I feel like it's a leading question. I also feel what? like you're, you're, you're better qualified to comment on former British PMs than, than me. But before you do, I'll just I'll point out an interesting thing, which is, um, so I guess this, I'm trying to understand where the, what are they called, the trigonometry guys and that land politically. And that's actually quite helpful because it spelled it out. And you explained it to me a bit before the other day, which is that they don't like economic liberalism and also social liberalism. Like what they like is a more authoritarian type approach to the economy. So you have like, you know, not perhaps a command economy, but one that is more sort of aligned with the national interests and things like that. You know, things like stopping jobs from going abroad and building your own factories here because it's important we build chips or something like that. And then also the social conservatism, like really, you know, traditional family values, getting back to your traditional cultural roots. And well, yeah, it, I mean, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a point of view. We can say that, but it, it isn't. It's not, liberal. <laughs> it's not liberal, right? Not even in the classical liberal sense, is it? It's something else historically has appealed to those sorts of ideas. Yeah, yeah. And just to be that clear, Matt, so they spell out the differences and where, you know, Johnson betrayed the promise that he offered to people. And here's Goodwin spelling that out. If you're going to deliver Brexit, if you're going to reform immigration, if you're going to push back against the woke, um, we're going to give you a chance. And what happened? Johnson basically let them down. Johnson did the reverse on a lot of that stuff. I mean, one of the untold stories about British politics today, which I don't think many people out there have yet realized, is the extent to which Boris Johnson and the Conservatives liberalize the immigration system in Britain to the point that we now have 504,000 uh, 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 as a net migration um, level, the highest we've, we've ever had. Uh, and just to make the point, they promised that it would go down. David Cameron promised well, to the tens of thousands. Yeah, it's so, now half so, so what's happened is British conservatives, <laughs> Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings and others have been gaslighting the British people because what they've been saying is we're going to control immigration, we're going to lower immigration. And then when they ended up in power, they said, well, actually, we didn't mean lower. We just meant we're going to give you control. So there you hear, right, the motifs, the betrayal of the common people by an elite which posed as delivering what the people wanted. And what do the people want? They want mass reductions to the rate of immigration. They want anti-cosmopolitan policies. They want local jobs for local people. And it's his reading of that as well, Matt, that Johnson and the Conservatives, like essentially the way he describes it is, you know, they're just really pro-immigration. That's amazing given the current debates in UK politics around conservative efforts to restrict immigration. The problem is that they actually have succeeded in lowering immigration from the EU. But the rates are high because I don't know if you notice, Matt, there's been a a war on and there's been a pandemic which has started to ebb so people are traveling and you know there is a high immigration rate this year but it's due to a whole bunch of factors and overall britain's immigration is in line with other countries in europe you know of similar sizes and when you take into account immigration and so on and so forth it's not this huge influx of people that are completely changing the fabric of britain it, it's yeah. living in a, a modern interconnected world and uh yeah chris it, it really reminds me a lot of our take on jordan peterson which is it's impossible to listen to all the stuff he says and not get the sense that he's this accidental fascist he certainly has no idea he's got zero self-awareness that he has sympathies that lie in that direction and that would be absolutely true of the people that we're just listening to there but if you just look at the themes the betrayal of okay there's, there's nothing fascist about jordan peterson 
right all these things that are supposedly so fascist right that they're held by you know dozens of right-wing communities but you're just going to choose like the one the one fashion uh, fascist community that's going to be the one you're going to focus on anyway coming up on the weekend guys it's uh really important that you get ready here at 29 simple disco moves that you can bring to your synagogue tonight it's it's uh disco night at the orthodox synagogue i'm going to tonight so i've been practicing these uh, from adelaide 27 simple disco moves stick around after the dance and we'll break them down together oh yeah this guy's the best man so we're gonna we're gonna break down the top uh 29 disco moves from down under. Of the elites who've, who've tricked the, the common people into policies that they don't want. That xenophobia, traditional family values, getting back to the fabric that, that holds our nation together, even getting that anti-economic liberal idea of being against free trade and wanting to get big business and stuff sort of more under the thumb so it's in the service of the people rather than taking advantage of them. I mean, these are all the things that was attractive about the Nazi party. I mean, in, in general, people did not vote for them because they thought, hey, let's have a world war and do the Holocaust. That wasn't why they voted to them. They voted for them. Yeah, I mean, they just see Nazis anytime you have, like, you know, someone who has a right-wing political orientation. This is such weak analysis here from Decoding the Guru. Because of these kinds of arguments. But, you know, you talked about the lack of self-awareness. So what Goodwin has suggested to brand this branch is national conservatives. <laughs> right. So it's someone else that, that used a similar terminology once. But, but he was... Yeah, national conservatives is kind of a, a weird term. But there's nothing inherently, you know, fascist or even, you know, more likely Nazi about it. Bloody heck. Just days before the 2020 election, dozens of former intelligence officials, some very famous people with a lot of credibility, produced a letter claiming that Hunter Biden's recently discovered laptop was from Russia. It was likely Russian disinformation. That was a lie, and we've suspected it was a lie for more than two years now. Now we're learning that lie came directly from Joe Biden and Tony Blinken, now the Secretary of State. That lie was election interference. And yet there was not a single question about this story today at the White House briefing. We, by contrast, will have all the very latest on it in just a moment. But first, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. For centuries, politicians in this country assumed that in order to win an election, you had to convince voters to vote for you. You had to make their case. That was called democracy. But the defining strategic insight of the modern Democratic Party is they don't really need to convince anyone of anything. What matters is demographics. You need to import enough people from elsewhere, people who are financially dependent on you in order to live. That's the story of the state of California. That's why California changed. It's why Texas is changing. But it's also happening at the local level all over the country. Democrats have realized that they win the vote in virtually every major city. But the suburbs remain contested, and that matters because suburban voters like school boards and state legislators and, of course, members of Congress. So if you want total control over the entire country, you need demographic change everywhere, including in the suburbs. This is a very obvious insight, and Democrats have been on the case for quite a while. Back in 2009, the Obama administration took the county of Westchester in New York, a solidly Democratic place, to court. Why'd they do that? Well, the administration withheld tens of millions of dollars in federal funding unless Westchester pledged to build 10,000 low-income, high-density apartments in their suburbs. 
The Obama administration later implemented a rule requiring suburbs to take, quote, affirmative steps to diversify their neighborhoods or else they would lose federal money. When he took office, Joe Biden threw his support behind something called the HOME Act. Among other things, the HOME Act would allow the federal government to withhold funds from local governments if they didn't find ways to add high-rise apartments or high-density zoning to suburbs. Specifically, the act would have prevented local governments from enacting, quote, ordinances that ban apartment buildings from certain residential areas or set a minimum lot size for a single-family home. So you can't be safe in a leafy suburb anymore. It has to be urbanized. The HOME Act has stalled in Congress. It has never become law. But the Biden administration didn't give up just because democracy didn't produce the results they wanted. They still plan to change the suburbs forever by getting rid of them. Joe Biden's HUD secretary, Marsha Fudge, a former member of Congress, explained last year that the administration was concerned that African-Americans cannot afford homes, not because they're poor, but because home appraisers are racist. Watch. What the president has said is that we have to look at everything through a lens of equity. And so what we have realized is that people selling homes, just as the persons you were talking about, and even people buying homes, if their appraisal is not correct, what we find, especially as black people in communities of color and underserved communities, is we lose great wealth just through the appraisal process. Notice here the seizing of the moral high ground. Big picture, if the Biden administration cared about African-Americans, they probably wouldn't withdraw the police from America's cities. So, they, of course, they don't care. But in point of fact, former Congressman Marsha Fudge, in the clip she just saw, presented no evidence whatsoever that there are white supremacist home appraisers in this country or that they are running amok. If they exist, who are they? Well, she couldn't tell us. But instead, she offered this anecdote. I live two doors from an all-white community. I live in an all-black community. My house is larger than the house two doors from me. My lot is larger than the house two doors from me. But my house is valued at $25,000 less than the house two doors from me. And so once we can start to, to address and just own up to the fact that we are continuing to discriminate and redline in our housing efforts, then I think... I don't know. Is there anything about how your community behaves that perhaps reduces real estate values? I remember I was in synagogue around uh, year 2000, 2001, and the president of the synagogue got up and noticed and said, I noticed that a soul food restaurant has moved in next door and either they know something that we don't and therefore we should be selling our real estate <laughs> or they're making a really bad decision. So, yeah, how your community behaves, how your people behaves is going to affect your real estate values. And as far as, oh, the Biden administration doesn't care about black people because they're not uh, policing them rigorously. Well, overall, the black community don't want to be policed. They don't want to be held to white standards, right? By and large, the black community is probably more hostile to the police than positive. They don't want white levels of law and order in their communities. They want far more relaxed and far more lenient uh, black levels of, uh, you know, what is you know, enforced and, and not enforced in their community. Different communities have different desires from law enforcement, different desires for what they perceive as, as right and wrong. So, you know, some parts of the white community have these standards, other parts of the white community have different standards, uh, parts of the black community have different standards, Asian community, right? Different communities want very different things from law enforcement. So 
it's not like the Biden administration doesn't care about the black community because it is largely sided with how the black community wants to be policed. How does the black community want to be policed? On average, it seems like they don't want to be policed very much. They just want to bang. They just want to be free and they don't want white standards imposed on them. I think that we can make sure that we can start to deal with the racial wealth gap. Yeah. So as the left is often telling you, an anecdote is not a study. Noticing something around you doesn't make it universally true. You've proved nothing. You've merely told us a little story. Marsha Fudge's lived experience tells her that there is racism in home appraisals. But there's still no data on that. There's no evidence whatsoever. It is at this point completely made up. But Kamala Harris is convinced completely, as she was last year. The home appraisal workforce is one of the least diverse in our nation. Less than 5% of home appraisers in America are people of color. This lack of diversity can introduce both conscious and unconscious biases. Well, when I think person of color, I, I think Kamala Harris. I mean, have you ever met a more colorful person? I mean, she could she could pass for white, right? But she chooses to, you know, like Obama, right? Obama could simply just pass as mixed race, but uh, she's strongly identifying as a person of color. Maybe I need to get my eyes checked. That make home appraisals less accurate and less fair. Our administration will now require those who conduct appraisals for federal programs must take part in anti-bias, fair housing, and fair lending training. There are solutions. There are solutions. <laughs> We're just going to brainwash the home appraisers. <laughs> We're going to put them in bias training. Really, if you wanted more black home appraisers, why wouldn't you start a program to train them? No. The only job training program this administration has gotten behind in two and a half years is getting black people to sell more weed in the cities, literally. We're legalizing weed, and we're going to make sure the weed dispensaries have African-American owners. They're not training any black people to be home appraisers. And by the way, the premise of this is itself unproven. That home appraisers are racist? Why do we think that? Again, there's zero evidence of that. It's a slur upon home appraisers, by the way. Why do they deserve this abuse? Well, they don't. They're not hurting anyone. They're accountant types. Why is the administration calling them racist? <laughs> but they are, and they have been for more than a year. So once again, they're using fake allegations of racism as a pretext for a political plan. And in this case, the plan is to flood the suburbs with voters they believe will support the Democratic Party. It's super simple. They don't deserve the moral high ground just because they're throwing race around or claiming they speak on behalf of black people. Kamala Harris is claiming to speak on behalf of black people. Right. OK. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're right. But no one's stopping them. So without any vote in Congress, the Biden administration has just introduced a rule, not a law, a rule that will punish Americans who've tried to do the right thing. Punish people with high credit scores. The people with high credit scores will pay higher fees on their mortgage payments to subsidize people who haven't maintained good credit. So these rules take effect on May 1st, whether you like it or not. 
And they mean that anyone with good credit, that's defined as a score of 680 or above, is going to have to pay roughly $40 a month extra on their mortgage fees than those with lower scores on home loans of around 400 grand. So here's an example. If you have a FICO score of 620, you get a 1.75% discount on your mortgage fees. If you have a 740 score, in other words, you pay your bills on time, you've done the right thing, you're a good citizen, you have to pay 1% more. So you don't get a discount for doing the right thing and paying your bills, you get punished. We are incentivizing bad behavior. We're hurting the good people. Since the day you were born, you have been told, pay your debts. It's not your money. You borrowed it from somebody else. You have to pay it back. If you don't, it's stealing. Now we're saying, if you don't steal, we're going to hurt you. And in real life, that means that over the course of a 30-year mortgage for a $400,000 home, that's a swing of more than $14,000. And they're claiming racism to justify this. Black Americans are the only racial group in this country with average credit scores of under 680. Now, why is that? We don't know. Whites, Hispanics, Asians have higher credit scores. Therefore, as you'd expect, the mortgage denial rate for African-American borrowers is higher than the overall population. It's double in this country's biggest markets. And that's the reason the suburbs have different demographics from the cities. That's called economics. Now, if you wanted to change that, you would encourage people to have good spending habits and pay back their debt. (laughs) But they don't care about that. Making people happier, getting them out of debt? No. They want to change the suburbs, make them denser, so there'll be more reliably democratic voting. That's the bottom line. It's always about election results. It's always about power. It's not about improving anybody's life. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party's donors in private equity, of course, are happy it'll be even harder for Americans with good credit to buy homes. Why? Because that will mean more renters. Renters of homes they own. Home ownership is increasingly out of reach. In our portfolio, the majority cannot buy a home, cannot afford to buy a home, or don't have the credit to buy the homes. I think if you asked a lot of millennials, and that tends to be our primary resident, um, they would probably tell you that they don't necessarily desire to own a home or to Mm -hmm. own a car. They've grown up in the sharing economy, and for what's important to them is lifestyle. Right? And so if they can move into this, what we call a turnkey or hotel-ready home, and have a low-maintenance lifestyle, that's very compelling for them. <laughs> People don't want to even, they don't want to own anything. They want to be penniless and impoverished, live at the whims of oligarchs. That's really what they want. Do you own anything, Mr. Oligarch guy? She never asked. Stephanie Pomboy is an economist, CEO of Macro Maven. She joins us tonight to assess. Stephanie, thanks so much. For coming on. So as always, the beneficiaries of these schemes are never the people who they tell you they are. Oh, the oppressed, the hopeless in our inner cities. It's always their donors. <laughs> okay, uh, some devastating writing from Colin Liddell. Let me find that. Did you know that uh, Colin had a substack? And uh, back in 2014, he wrote... What are the general characteristics of the people driving social media and thus the new media? We can infer the following. They have more disposable time than the average person. They're in front of their computers or on their smartphones more than they should be. They are less involved in careers, hard work, and doing something useful. They have less family commitments and offline personal involvements. They are less embedded in real society. In short, the people happy to work for free, powering the engine of the new media, tend to be lazy, frustrated, 
self-centered losers and loners largely cut loose from real society. Those connected to real society by their jobs, families, responsibilities, and involvement in their communities tend to be more conservative and have a lot less time and energy to put into being excited or triggered by memes and themes on the internet. So social media is something you do when you are outside society. So social media reflects the unrealistic, narcissistic, and socially deconstructive views of these anti-social individuals. All right, great stuff there, published by Colin Liddell, apparently November 15, 2014. And then he had a devastating essay, Who's Who in the Dissident Riot, Andy Nowicki. And I like Andy, and I wish this wasn't so devastating, but I fear that it's pretty accurate. More a case of who was who in the distant right rather than who is who. Andy Nowicki is nevertheless significant as an example of the QAnonization of a comparatively normal American. Wow, that's, that's a really good point. A Gen Xer of Polish, Irish, and Italian antecedents based in Georgia, one of the writers from the original alternative right site, Andy Nowicki, was a reasonably sensible Catholic traditionalist with a limited interest in understanding of political, ideological, and philosophical matters, but a nice line in passive-aggressive skepticism. In recent years, however, he has become an increasingly florid conspiracist who appears to be mainly driven by his emotional issues, men going their own way, incelism, masturbation, due to his rather plain-looking wife leaving him some years ago after the kids had grown up. This led to a rather sad but occasionally comic downward spiral. He started writing for Richard Spencer's alternative right.com in 2010, 2012. So, yeah, people, what kind of characters migrate to marginalized positions? Marginalized characters. In 2012, Richard Spencer sent Andy Nowicki to South Africa to cover the post-apartheid nation. Later in the year, Spencer handed over editorial control of alternative right.com to Nowicki and myself, who co-edited it for a year and a half with me doing 90% of the work before Richard shut the site down. Following this, I refounded the site as a blogspot on Boxing Day 2013, and in the interest of continuity, I invited Andy Nowicki to serve as joint editor. But he soon dropped out, merely used the site to promote his self-published books of conspiratard fiction and self-indulgent autobiographical writing. Several of his books are about suicide. He believes in crackpot theories like the Mandela effect that are often associated with schizophrenics. So what is the... Uh, Mandela effect. Schizophrenia, the Mandela effect, living on the edge of insanity. So I don't really know much about it. Let's talk about this Mandela effect phenomenon from a medical, healthcare, psychiatry, psychologist perspective. All right. What's going to happen when legitimately mentally ill, schizophrenics, paranoid delusional, individuals who are already prone to psychoses or psychoses comes across one of these Mandela effector type videos propaganda and is now convinced oh it's not me my psychiatrist is wrong he put me on these medications so I can stay normal I don't need these medicines anymore it's not me it's the Mandela effect you know, I can't remember stuff like I used to 
because it's the Mandela effect. So what's going to happen when these paranoid people who are already mentally ill, legitimately, who need to be on their medication, they, they start to learn about this Mandela effect garbage and now they're convinced that their doctor, their psychiatrist, their psychologist doesn't understand them because they don't believe in the Mandela effect. Therefore, they don't need to be on their psychotropic medications anymore. All right. They don't need to be under the care of their Alzheimer's specialist because it's not Alzheimer's. It's the Mandela effect causing them. Okay, let's uh, go back here to Colin Liddell's essay on Andy Nowicki. So Colin writes, Andy literally believes that globalists moved South Africa on the maps. He also has an almost fetishistic fascination with failure and being a loser, reflected in the titles of his autobiographical books, Confessions of a Would-Be Wanker and Ruminations of a Low-Status Male. More recently, he is focused increasingly on YouTube, where he continues to give his misinformed and tedious opinions. For example, he literally believes that secret elite networks held together by sex crimes against children run the world, except for Russia although he has himself sometimes shown an interest in borderline pedo content. His videos often feature him lying on a bed as if about to die of despair while clutching a pillow or alternatively pretending to be a bit hopped up in a manner apparently designed to cause concern to those actively trying to preempt the next spree shooter. He has, of course, written a book of gullible, unresearched trash on the now discredited Pizzagate scandal. Yeah, I hope there haven't been too many spree shooters who did it to try to bring attention to their books due to his complete ignorance of geopolitics and his conspiratard bent he believes that the issue of our day the russian invasion of the ukraine is actually an attack by evil globalists on innocent holy mother russia he occasionally appears on outright neo-nazi podcasts like our interesting times and morgoth continues to write underappreciated fiction for matt forney's terror house press Due to former ties, I was only able to write as honestly as this about him when he foolishly decided to personally attack me in one of his dumb videos. All in all, I still like Andy, but believe he could do with a little more self-reflection and Christian humility. Rather tragic for someone to be a Christian and not get any of the benefits. I think that's a devastating critique there by Colin Liddell, and I'm afraid it is seems to... The degree I know pretty accurate. I'm talking about what the features of that would be. Just listen to see if you can pick up on any you know, common motifs. Some conservatives today have grasped the fact that they cannot simply offer an anti-state, low-tax, pro-business message that, that the world has moved on. And so national conservatives are saying the time is now here to make the case for an active state that can intervene in uh, the economy to make things fairer, that is sceptical of business, especially when business becomes political, especially when business starts to promote values that are seen to be anti-conservative, uh, and which um, is much more realistic about globalization and free trade. I mean, this is one of the things I talk about in the book is how basically Thatcherites um, became so obsessed with free trade and globalization that they lost sight of the damage it was doing in communities. I mean, globalization wasn't just negative for economic reasons. I mean, the evidence is pretty clear. It smashed communities in areas in Northern England that were subjected to higher imports from China or Eastern Europe. Um, the result was not just lower wages was not just a lower share of the national income going going to those areas. It was also weaker relationships, um, higher rates of family breakdown, higher rates. Okay, either what he's saying is true or not true. So to attack him as a you know, neo-Nazi, I think, is pretty weak. Right, the chat has informed me about what the Mandela effect is. 
Uh, the belief that the timeline has been changed, facts have been replaced with an alternative reality. It's like Streisand effect by proxy, old history timelines glitch in the matrix. Berenstein bears used to be Bernstein bears, but the timeline has been altered. I remember Luke Ford being a porno blocker with a huge porno blogger with a huge beard, but he denies this and those videos no longer exist. Okay, so any links to Milo on Tim Pool and any timestamps could be could be hot stuff there. All right, back to decoding the gurus. Uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, people being pushed onto welfare benefits. Now, conservatives, I thought, you know, care about community, care about family. Um, but too often, I meet conservatives who routinely prioritize um, the market um, and globalization and free trade uh, over these issues around community and family. Yes, yeah. So I mean, what you need by is a national conservative government that, you know, could intervene and take control of economics and, you know, not in a heavy-handed way, but just kind of prioritize it towards the national interests. Interest. And yep. that would promote, you know, healthy, traditional family values and communities, national, national yep. communities and, and, and values. You know, you could braid people's hair, you could practice fitness, you know, all the, these traditional values. No, no warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's catched in some nice language about caring about communities and stuff. But yeah, it's the same basic idea. It's also a concern with morality, moral behavior, family-oriented behavior, behavior that conforms with community and supports and makes the social fabric of the nation stronger. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if, like, the trigonometry people certainly don't know what they're talking about. Like, I'm sure they think of themselves as some kind of classical, true liberal, where this is the exact opposite of that. Well, you might, you might be confused, Matt, sorry. I just, Constantine has a point where he addresses this. So just in case you were getting confused, you know, from their lack of pushback on any of this. Can we come back to the economics of this? Because, I mean, as you know, I'm not conservative, but on the economics. So apparently Milo has backed out of appearing on uh, Tim Pool, and he, he blames it on his degenerative eye condition. And I'm sure that's 100% true. I'm always very, very persuaded by small state as, as, an, as an idea because my concern is and we've seen it with you know we're seeing these lockdown files coming out yeah the bigger the government the more the, you know the government can you know they, they'll give you money yeah the, the bigger the government the smaller the citizen devastating analysis bro but they're also going to tell you what to do a lot and i, I really don't want that uh, as, as much as, as, as it can be avoided so just to be clear constantine's not conservative matt so you might have you know you might have got the wrong impression he's a small state guy he's the classical liberal guys you know mm -hmm. gotcha. yeah yeah, yeah. I think he's still just figuring it out. He's figuring it all out. What first principles? Hey, look, so the other point that you mentioned was in terms of the response, there's also Francis' response, the other host, the lesser mentioned host of trigonometry. Um, and I think it's worth getting to how he responds to this tale of woe of the, the people not being represented. But, but just one more point, Matt, because Nigel Farage, given that he is championing these kind of things like economic isolationist policies and, and a strong anti-immigration message, why wasn't he able to seize the moment, win the general election or that kind of thing? Well, Matt, we had Nigel Farage sitting in that very seat a few weeks back, and he actually said that the reason that populism, not that it failed, but it didn't achieve what it could have achieved, and in particular UKIP, mm. was because of the, because of the two-party system, which is impossible to break. Yeah. Do you think part of the reason that populism founded is because of that? And if you look at our European friends, they all tend to have a proportional representation. That's part of the story, and I've spent a long time following um, Farage's movement, and I've written about it. One of the first books that I did was about it, and. You know, the European Parliament elections under a proportional system with a springboard that he shrewdly used in 1999 to, to get visibility. And then one of the ironies of Brexit is that a moment that was supposed to lead to the reform of our politics made our politics more elitist because it took away the European Parliament elections. So the only way you can change the system now is through first-past-the-post general elections, which is an impossible thing to do. Mm -hmm. So just a couple of motifs I want to highlight. And first of all, there's the uncritical acceptance of his version of why he wasn't able to succeed. It's because of the party system. Otherwise, you know, the will of the people would, would sweep him and others like him into the halls of power. 
that couldn't be a self-serving framing of things from a populist who uh, is, is... Is not that popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It couldn't be that. No, it's all to do with the two-party system. Secondly, this emphasis on the will of the people, it's really selective because in 2011 in the UK, part of a coalition government, this thing which you know apparently never happens in the UK, it did happen. The Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats formed a coalition government. Part of that agreement was that the Conservatives would hold a referendum on an alternative voting system, a change to the voting system which would not make it first past the post. Right? It would be proportional. Now, you might notice that the UK doesn't have that system. So that referendum, Matt, the landslide will of the people was expressed with a 70% vote against 68.2 or something like that. But anyway, it goes to 70% vote against changing the voting system. So presumably, given that Brexit was 52% of the vote in the referendum, and that was the clear will of the people, this 70% should be a landslide indication that the people are very happy with first-past-the-post voting systems. But no, it seems like the will of the people only matters if it leads to right-wing populists getting more power. And similarly... All of the indicators are that Labour... So I've been uh, Googling how to dance. So if you're wondering, you know, what the hell I'm doing in the background here, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to disco dance because we're having a lot of disco dancing at, at shawls these days. ...are going to sweep the power in the next election. And this is a problem for that narrative, right? Because why are people going to elect a Liberal government if what they really want is a much harder right-wing government. So here's why that square is circled. You ask voters, who do you want to be prime minister? Uh, Keir Starmer's ahead of Rishi Sunak. Who do you want to manage the economy? Labour's ahead of Conservatives. Who do you want to manage immigration? Labour's ahead of Conservatives. <laughs> who do you want to manage Brexit? Labour's ahead of Conservatives. But here's the thing. Um, who's ahead of all of them? None of them. None of the above. I mean, the level of disillusionment out there is palpable. You see it, right? You see we it. Feel like, it. The yeah. reservoir of disillusionment, the fact that everybody is sort of just out there saying, none of these people really represent me. None of these people speak for me, speak for my values, represent my voice. Except for Nigel Farage, of course, but yeah. But people are unaccountably not voting for people like that. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting squaring of the circle, isn't it? Like, these people have always existed, right? Like, there's always fringe parties. There's always discontent with the centre parties. Everyone hates politicians. Um, yeah, and we did have a populist movement, right? They're talking about real dynamics. Yeah, yeah, and we have them in Australia too. You know, every 10 years or so, you have this, this wave of disillusionment with the major parties. The fringe parties get a bit more votes on the left sometimes as well as the right, and people tend to move back to the centre parties. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, the centre parties are the centre parties because they uh, the parties that people want. That's why they vote for them. It's odd to me that, that the trigonometry guys don't recognize what it is that they are. Like the self-presentation is that they are like a, like a median person, like a man in the street. They represent common sense kind of views and, and they set themselves up against these elite ivory towers and fancy ideological type people. But the people that are the people in the street, the typical average median type person are voting for the major parties. Whereas these guys are advocating for what is a fringe view. A fringe right wing. <laughs> That's the, I find it so frustrating when like, the politician that you feel most affinity with is Nigel Farage. And the guys that get you exercised are Lawrence Fox. And there's a part where Goodwin and, and Constantine are talking about how often they bump into each other. And you know they're often reading each other's substacts and they find each other so insightful. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. Welcome back. We have had you on the show a lot. This is my third time. Is it? Yeah. yeah it feels like more because we really we, you, you always provide fantastic commentary on, on British and other politics. Yeah. Uh, you and have, we always bump into each other at various events. That we do. Um, it's actually your fourth time now. Sorry. <laughs> maybe the one in the aftermath of the 2019 election was like a bit of a yeah. blur, so maybe I forgot that one. Yeah, so we've done a few. But my point is, we're always really interested to hear your take on things. Yeah, you, in addition to your books, you, yep. you, you, you have a fantastic substack that I read religiously, actually. I read yours too. Uh, thank you. I wonder, is it because they perhaps share some ideological presuppositions and interests? Yeah. You know, it's interesting the lack of awareness that's on display. But the cherry on the cake. So after all this talk about, you know, politicians not delivering, the system being rigged, 
This is what Oliver says about what can be done, uh, you know, poses this question to Goodwin. You won't meet many mainstream US Republicans today who are advocating a Reagan-type view of the world. Conservatism is changing in big ways, in important ways. I know you had Yoram Hazoni on the show, and, you know, he's often made that, that very argument. Matt, aren't we really just talking about the political system no longer being fit for purpose? If it doesn't represent the people that it, it should, then quite frankly, what's the point? What's the point, Matt? What's the point of the political system then? Should we just chuck it in the bin? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering what is the alternative uh, system. Oh, if, only, if only someone in the past hundred odd years, 50, 60 years had thought or there'd been people who had tried that, you know, that had said the people are not represented. I, the strong anti-immigration pro-nationalist person, represent the true will of the people. I can't be bothered with your representative democracies. If only that had been tried and we could look back at history and see how it went. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the thing is clear is that these guys who are speaking for the voice of the common people, like all of the people that have claimed to do so all through history, from flashback to the Jacobins and our episode with the sovereign nations type thing, like they've always been this kind of chattering class. They've always never tilled the fields or worked in a factory or whatever. They've always been people like this these days in the infosphere, in the discourse land, writing books, you know, having podcasts, doing all this shit. They always claim to be speaking for the common man. And really what they're trying to do is just get themselves into power. I mean, it's, uh, it's the same, same old thing, isn't it? So well, funny. you know, so people people will always take issue with this kind of thing. They say, you, know, don't draw, you shouldn't be comparing everyone to proto-fascists or that kind of thing. But it's just the rhetorical parallels are so clear in this material and less it got even you know even more sinister uh goodwin just frozen this bit towards the end of the interview it's going to be cool to kind of cool wait wait are the rhetorical parallels you know really that clear between this you know basic bitch conservatism and nazism i mean i don't really see it now i always wanted to learn how to dance disco but it was like a, a sin in my upbringing so Forgive me if I'm awkward. Forgive me if I'm flawed. Forgive me if I'm just trying to reach my way here to, you know, learn how to disco like it's 1979 and I'm in Studio 54. I mean, forgive me for wearing my heart on my sleeve. Forgive me for trying something new. Forgive me for getting out of my comfort zone. Forgive me for wanting to expand my life. Forgive me for wanting to... You know, go beyond what is normal and natural for me. You know, take, I need your compassion, right? I'm not, I'm not a bad man trying to do bad. I'm a sick man trying to get well. I just well, want to love. And also I think the evidence is going to undermine it. You know, we are on the cusp of developments with genetic coding um, and science that are going to be complete game changers in how we understand health, medicine, life expectancy, all of that stuff. So the idea that there are not um, inherent differences between groups is just going to be completely unsustainable. I mean, it already is, if you look at the evidence. But over the next five to 10 years, it's just going to look utterly ridiculous as a lot of this research and evidence comes through. <laughs> Why? Just, Why? Just, <laughs> just, just <laughs> popping that in. That's, that's a nice stinger, uh, yeah. given the context of that discussion. <laughs> what prompted you to throw that one in? Yeah. yeah. Even the bit where he's talking about health outcomes, right? Like you think that he's talking about, you know, genetic developments and personalized health. And then he's like, and of course, Group differences are, are going to be undeniable. You're like, what? Like, where was that blew in from? So we're going to have... Right? Denying group differences, you're the moron, right? There's nothing Nazi about recognizing that there are group differences. If you just associate belief in group differences with, with Nazism, Nazism, then that's just absolutely moronic, right? The Nazis thought that, uh, you know, IQ tests were... Were, were horrible things that were just Jewish manipulation. The Nazis were very strongly against uh, Darwinian conceptions of evolution. So 
These guys don't know what they're talking about. Wing populist movements that take greater control over the economy to orientate it towards state interests. And yep. we, need, we need to stop immigration, obviously. That's part of it. And the, the genetic evidence is going to come out, which is going to show... Group differences. <laughs> Who can say? <laughs> that will look so ridiculous in the glorious future of our nation. So, yeah, that was just, I was like, why? <laughs> yeah, oh, my God, that smells so off. You know, that whole conversation, when you put all those pieces together. It's, oh, smells yeah. off. Really Yeah, it has a lot of it about, you know, the anti-woke stuff, the get into diversity statements and all that. And we, we could look at that whole side of it. But I know we've spent a significant portion on it. But, but just, it was so striking to me. One, the superficiality and ahistorical nature of the political analysis. There's components of it which, yes, are correct, like talking about these ebbs and flows and support for populist figures and various dynamics. But fundamentally, it's presented as something of a dispassionate scholarly examination of that phenomenon. But Goodwin's preference is so clear, so close to the surface, that you have to be wearing blinders not to see it. And the trigonometry fellows, I believe, have just the blinders. Even to the extent that there's supposed to be people that are all worried about the creeping authoritarianism of the state. And then Oliver, uh, oh, sorry, his name is Francis. I've been calling him Oliver. <laughs> so anyway, Francis, he goes so far as to say, what's the point of the democratic elections and that kind of thing? So mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, that was ugly. Um, I didn't like that, but it was a good, it was on topic. It was a good wind of the... Oh, ugly, ugly. That's really strong analysis. So one of the most challenging parts of my life was when my sister got married. It was like February 1982. And I came out to Brisbane, Australia for her wedding. And there was dancing. It was the first time in my life I'd ever been exposed to, to dancing because it was such a sin in my upbringing. And I had to like go out onto the dance floor uh, my, my cousin, my cousin Linda, who I think took me out onto the, the dance floor and people said I looked like I was uh, just jogging in place because I just didn't know what I was doing. It was just such a trauma. I was just so, so bad. But I, I got to work on my, my hand strobing, my, my fancy feet. I, do you think I can really learn to dance on, on YouTube? I mean, this is a fair dinkum Aussie trucker bloke, and he's got some, got some moves, man. I, I'm impressed, but I'm not impressed by these decoding the gurus, just attributing, you know, basic conservative perspectives as, you know, just somehow proto-fascism. So let's get... Uh, On the public scene for decades. And yeah, so I think it'll be interesting. We're not going to have a lengthy introduction this time. People were spoiled last time with an entire episode before we, we got past the introduction. But this, this will just be short. But, you know, last time we did a mini decoding of Matthew Goodwin's appearance with the Trigonometry Brothers. And we did receive some feedback. We received positive feedback, which we do receive. But there were some people, Matt, that felt you in particular, Matthew Brown, were a little too quick to jump to the old comparisons with Mr. Hitler and, and his friends, the, mm -hmm. the Nazis, and uh, the you know, good... Goodwin, not Goodwin's, Godwin's law, right? Mm. You know, that saying, yep. Matt, haven't you discredited your argument by by invoking that that specter in discourse? That little meme of, you know, all of my opponents are Nazis. And I like it's that good. I cast this just as you, but so what have you got to say for yourself, Matt? For, <laughs> well, first of all, I, well, first of all, I appreciate it that we can apply Godwin's law to Goodwin. That's, yeah. that's the first note of appreciation. And as you know, Chris, I'm one of these people, I like to call the people who disagree with me Nazis. It's my go-to. It's my thing. And the people that try to defend the people that I call Nazis, they're probably Nazis too. So that's yeah. my first rebuttal to that. No, no, no. Of course, that's not what we do. Look, I think um, I stand by it. You know, we're a little bit careful and that's similar to Jordan Peterson. We really did emphasize that we are not saying that they are literally 
Nazis. We definitely don't think they would even think of themselves as being not only not fascist, but not even having any proclivities in a slightly fascist direction. So what I think we are humbly pointing out is that the kinds... So I'm kind of naive with Disco Dance moves. The important thing is I don't want to do anything that like seems to be simulating sex because I learned from my Seventh-day Adventist upbringing that like a lot of rock and roll music, that it is, it's really about simulating sexual intercourse. And so if you see anything vulgar, inappropriate, something that diminishes me as a moral leader in your eyes, I just hope you'll forgive me. I am learning. Of things that they like, the kinds of things that they find appealing, do share a fair bit of common ground with the tenets of national so- socialism, um, which hey, or, it's an ethos. Or I think, you know, one way to thread the needle would be to say that, you know, fascism is a broad church, right? And there, there are, like the farther right you go, the more that you lean towards like fascist kind of things. This is this is basic political theory. Yeah, and the it's, it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum, right? Right. But the farther left you go, the more you tend to lean into like worrying forms of communism. So yeah. like the extremes are extreme for a reason. And there are certain motifs associated with like fascist political approaches. And you can hear at very least echoes of them in a bunch of the things that Goodwin does, right? And was doing. Now, is he anti-Semitic, targeting the Jews, saying that we need the living space to expand upon? No, he's not. Yeah. And, and he would, I think, actively oppose the return uh, or like the promotion of overt neo-Nazis in right-wing politics. Like he, he might be tolerant, of people who, who have been discovered to have such links. But I'm not saying that he would be out on the barricade saying that these people need a place at the table and they have to be there. So no, he's yeah, not an yeah. advocate for modern neo-Nazis. Yeah. And look, the problem is, is that these that particular stream of political thinking, because of the events of the 20th century, has achieved this kind of totemic status in the minds of everybody to such a degree that I think people can fall into the trap of thinking that unless somebody has big shiny boots and is goose-stepping around the place, talking about you know, world wars and invading other countries, and it can't possibly be um, anything like fascism. But, you know, just to remember, looking... Fascism is pretty limited in history, all right? We, we only have examples of about one or two fascist regimes. So basic bitch conservatism, like basic concern for, for your people, for traditions, uh, the health of your community, to just immediately uh, associate that with Nazism and fascism is completely absurd back through history, the kinds of appeals that those extremely hard right groups made to achieve um, popularity, in many cases get themselves elected, was not saying, hey, let's have a world war and do various kinds of genocide. Nazism wasn't left wing, right? Nazism was right wing. It believed in hierarchy. It didn't believe in leveling like communism. It it was fine with uh, capitalists, you know, running the economy as long as it was under the, the you know, the auspices of the Nazi state and was used for the, for the furtherance of the people. But no, they were making certain kinds of appeals, a return to traditional family values, emphasizing the need for a strong community, a strong national fabric that is united and cohesive, being strongly against cosmopolitanism and internationalism, reigning in big business. Okay, so being nationalist and being against cosmopolitanism, that's, that's a very common response right, that has you know, nothing unique to Nazism, right? Hundreds of communities have, you know, had that response that had absolutely nothing to do with fascism and Nazism. Having these motifs, talking about these elites betraying the people. Okay, so plenty of communities and nations have had motifs about the elites betraying the people. 
all right, that have absolutely nothing in common with Nazism and, and fascism. So if you can find, you know, 100 examples of non-fascist, non-Nazi communities and nations that were complaining about the elites betraying the people, all right, why would you then just associate it with Nazism and fascism? Of course, it was a big trope about the narrative of the Nazis around World War One. It was seen as betrayal by the elites, saying that the democratic system is broken and this, you know, skepticism about it and being anti-immigration. And of course, the kicker, <laughs> a trope that we saw in Goodwin's thing was that advances in genetic science will soon prove that there are important group differences that will end up... Okay, there's absolutely nothing that's particularly Nazi or fascist about rev recognizing group differences, right? People from all over the political, social, cultural, religious spectrum have uh, recognized group differences. Supporting all of these views. So we are merely observing, I think, that there are many tropes in common. Yeah, and I, I think what you just detailed is the argument that we would put forward. Now, Goodwin, I will note, has been on a bit of a rampage on, on Twitter, highlighting that the people who are criticizing him, look, uh, these people all graduated from Oxford or Cambridge, and he seems to have dug into that well-established vein now that if you rage and you present things in a, a polemical fashion, that you get a lot of attention. And he is getting attention, much more than when he was before a kind of contrarian academic type. Now, he's becoming, you know, like a firebrand populist advocate. So that's interesting. But I just, I find it disheartening that that works so well. But also the notion that he's saying anything interesting when he is saying that, in British politics in particular, there is an overrepresentation of graduates from Oxford and Cambridge and that the media is predominantly left-leaning. Like those two notions, that's not new, Matt. That's not a new thesis. That's well-established. In fact, at my very lefty university, I went to my undergraduate at SOAS, that's what everybody would diagnose the faults of everything through that lens. So it's just amazing to me that you can get so much mileage out of presenting this as the thing that nobody wants to talk about, the overrepresentation of elite education institutions and the ruling classes. Like, where has he been for, for decades and decades? This is not a new thing. It is an established talking point. And that's part of why he's getting criticism is just the lack of historical context mm -hmm. in, in what he's saying and the clear polemical nature of it. But he uses that to say, well, of course, these elites would respond like that, right? So it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's a very effective... Yeah, like, polemic strategy. Yeah, just to rile people up and it works. So there we go. You know, he was saying on Twitter, he'll debate anyone who wants to and we have a right to reply. So, we, you know, we could end up talking to him, but he just seems to me like a polemicist. So what's there yeah. to discuss except yeah. rhetoric? Yeah, it doesn't sound like it would be much fun. Anyway, well, that's that. Yeah. I'll, I'll write a reply there. Always open to everyone. Barring. So we, we do draw the line at neo-Nazis and whatnot. And so the fact that we would allow him a right to reply would mean that, no, we don't classify him as a neo-Nazi. So they... Okay, so you can call, you know, almost anyone who's right-wing neo-Nazi. Neo-Nazi doesn't have a great deal of specificity. And why do neo-Nazis, of all people, not get a right to reply? So communists get a right to reply. You know, all sorts of political extremists apparently get a right of reply on the show. But there's one type of people who don't get a right of reply of what happened in Europe 70 years ago, but uh, you can find you know, plenty examples of uh, communist genocide, but uh, communists are honored guests on this podcast all the time. So why is it the communists are honored guests on the podcast, even though communists have uh, slaughtered tens and tens of millions of people, far more than the Nazis did, but they're welcome on the podcast. They're honored members of the podcast, all right? Uh, Marxists and communists, all right, they get honored on the podcast, but uh, the equivalent right-wingers, right, they're banned. There you go. See, it works out, Matt. Mm, fine, fine, yeah. fine. Now, on to Oprah. I agree with you, Chris. Some... Okay, that's going to do it. Have a good Shabbos. Bye-bye.